Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome to CRISPR Cuts. My guest today is Brian DeCaro. He's the CEO of Sherlock Biosciences, which works on CRISPR diagnostics. We've heard about Sherlock before from the co-founders Omar and Jonathan, and today we'll see what progress the company has made in the last couple of years. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Thank you, Manu. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, and thank you for the invite. So we would love to get to know you better. So could you just please start about telling us about yourself? Maybe let's start with your professional journey and then a little bit of your personal journey as well. So, you know, my Professional career started almost 30 years ago. My first job out of Berkeley was at Roche Diagnostics, and Roche had just licensed the patents for PCR, similar to Sherlock just licensing the patents for CRISPR diagnostics a couple of years ago, but this was 30 years ago. And really, you can see how disruptive PCR has been. Before then, all diagnostics were really like protein-based or culture-based, where you're growing up you know, different bugs on on cultures. And really then PCR became the gold standard, the molecular gold standard for diagnostics over the past 30 years. And you can also see that we sequenced the human genome because of PCR. We know all the genes because of PCR. It really was a disruptive technology. I really think like that is the theme of my professional career. I started out Pfizer where I was responsible for molecular medicine in areas of neuroscience, where again, we were applying uh, novel technologies to disrupt how drug development was done, really bringing personalized medicine to a reality. And, you know, one of the companies I later joined in my career was a company called Assurex Health, which was, again, focused on mental illness, where we used a whole panel of diagnostic markers to help patients find out which medications for depression were not going to work for them. And again, it was a real great example of personalized medicine and changing the way that that psychiatric prescribing is practiced in the U.S. today. You know, now Myriad acquired Assurex, and I later joined Myriad as the head of development. And our test called GeneSight is the, the largest leading you know, test for mental health medication selection globally. I also worked at a company called Medco Health Solutions. I don't know if you know them, but they were the largest insurer and deliverer of pharmaceutical medications in the U.S. at the time, they later were acquired by Express Scripts. It's a pharmacy benefit manager. And when I joined Medco, I wanted to disrupt the way that diagnostics were delivered. And so instead of them being insured through the medical plan, I wanted them to be insured through the pharmacy plan because diagnostics is the beginning of a journey to what's the right medication, is personalized medicine. And so you should have both together and not only you know pay for the diagnostic and then help select the medication, but Medco also delivered the medications through mail-order pharmacy, so you didn't have to go to the pharmacy. And uh, we were also looking at how we could do mail-order diagnostics. The diagnostic would also be delivered through the mail as well. So it's a really disruptive business model. You know, I think on the, you asked me about personal side. On the personal side a little bit, and I'll go deeper there on some personal anecdotes. I love exploring. And, you know, a lot of people, when they go hiking, I love hiking. When people go hiking, they typically walk along a path that 
has been laid out from like, you know, and it has a sign that says two miles ahead to the next like viewing spot. I typically look at a mountain and say, wow, what's behind that? And I just walk off the path and hike up through the mountain, through the wilderness and see what's on the other side and just drop into the valley on the other side, not knowing, you know, what that path's going to take. And and that's kind of what I've tried to do in my career. And, and that's one of the reasons I came to Sherlock was because I knew that CRISPR was going to have a major impact on diagnostics. And, you know, I didn't know all the paths that that will take us down, but I knew that it was really going to change the way that that diagnostics were done. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about that that a bit later. Thanks for uh, sharing, you know, this huge spectrum of work that you've done. It's really interesting that you've kind of stuck to diagnostics, but still there is just such a huge variety of, uh, you know, areas that you've touched throughout your career. So I definitely want to dive deeper into the diagnostic aspect and then also talk about Sherlock. But before that, I'm just curious that you said you kind of uh, saw the growth of PCR and now you've seen the growth of CRISPR. So it's just, I mean, one, it's extremely lucky to be seeing these technologies at the cusp of their growth. But as a scientist, it's really exciting, right, to be in such a space when you actually see a technology take off. So could you speak a little bit about just these newer technologies? And, you know, because initially there is always a little bit of skepticism around, like, is it really a big deal? Is it worth what it is? Like CRISPR especially has so much controversy around it. So what is your take as a former scientist or having seen these as a scientist in terms of uh, how they impact the space and how they are received by everyone in the space? Well, I think first of all, I think and when everybody hears CRISPR, they think about gene editing, right? So whenever I talk to anybody, then I say I'm at a CRISPR-based company. They're like, oh, you're editing genes or making designer children or like you're making new therapeutics. And, and I say, uh, no, that's not what we're doing here at Sherlock. And that's what I love about technology is it can have so many different applications. And so, you know, originally you talked with our founders, Jonathan and Omar, you know, Fung and, and Jim Collins are also founders. And, and they realized really early that different Cas enzymes and different, you know, CRISPR-based technology had different properties. And so when they they first were the ones to see that Cas12 and Cas13, you know, had the ability to be used not for gene editing, because it had this collateral activity where it just starts, once it finds a target, it just starts cleaving nucleic acid in the surrounding liquid, which is not a very good thing for gene editing, because you don't want to cleave a bunch of targets around you, but it's outstanding for letting you know that, you know, from a diagnostic point of view, your target's been found. And the great thing about Cas enzymes and CRISPR is that it has great specificity. I mean, the specificity that you need for precision of gene editing is the specificity that you need to say, I found my diagnostic target and I didn't find the wrong thing. I only found the right thing. And so when you're saying like, what is the real value of CRISPR in the diagnostic area? It's that high specificity, it has extremely high specificity, even higher than PCR, although PCR has great specificity. And so, you know, when you think about why do you need that type of specificity if PCR has good specificity, there's other ways to do diagnostics, other ways to amplify DNA, not just PCR. And some of these more isothermal, simpler uh, formats for amplification of DNA, they have some trade-offs. So they're, they're like a fixed temperature. Some of them get lower and lower temperatures. And as you go lower or you have a fixed temperature, you can actually amplify up the wrong target or make the wrong DNA. So you, you get all this sensitivity. You find what you're looking for, but you also might find a, a bunch of things that you don't want to amplify. And if those are amplified up, you get false positives. But with CRISPR, 
you bring back that specificity because CRISPR is only going to find the exact right target that was amplified and will only signal that presence once it finds that target. And so by combining CRISPR with isothermal amplification, which is the Sherlock method out of the Broad Institute, which is the namesake of Sherlock Biosciences, that is a unique combination for diagnostics. And it allows you to simplify the machinery that you would need to deliver those diagnostics. And if you pair it up with some other technology that we have from the Vies Institute, Jim Collins has actually, with his team, just created a ambient temperature amplification method. So it works completely at room temperature. And therefore, you don't need any electricity for heat. You don't need any device for heat. It can just work right there on the desk that you're sitting at right now, Minu, and it will amplify FDNA. Now, you can get some background from that, but that CRISPR brings back that specificity. And so now we actually have a paired combination where you can do amplification and detection with CRISPR at room temperature, very fast, very accurate, without any needs, any complex device. And so, you know, that is really what differentiates our technology and allows us to now disrupt the business model in diagnostics. That's really very interesting to know. And I have been definitely following, you know, Sherlock's journey, especially during COVID, but maybe for our listeners who uh, haven't been as much in touch with, you know, what you all have been up to. Could you speak a little bit about, I mean, one, what type of diseases is a company looking to provide diagnostics for? And just what has been new in the past couple of years since maybe we last heard Omar and Jonathan talk about their vision? So let me tell you a little bit about that latter part first, which is what's evolved. And then I'll talk to you a little bit about application space. So, you know, last time we talked with Jonathan and Omar, we were able to use CRISPR with you know, let's say a lamp amplification, and um, and it was a multi-pot step where you'd have to do lamp amplification first, then you'd do CRISPR detection. So you would do genomic DNA isolation, then an isothermal amplification, then a CRISPR detection and readout. And what we were able to do for COVID, for example, was we were able to actually combine all of those steps into a single one-pot reaction where we do not need to have an extraction. We could have a crude extraction or lysis that was compatible with our CRISPR reagents and, the, and with our amplification methods so that we'd amplify and then detect with CRISPR all in a single one-pot reaction. And we actually engineered uh, Cas enzymes that were thermostable, that worked at higher temperatures, the same temperatures that the isothermal amplification occurred on. And so we were able to do you know, very simple, high-accuracy testing in a very fast way, we could get results from a sample to answer in under 10 minutes is what we were able to demonstrate for COVID, for example. And that's been a great advancement. And then, as I've said, you know, recently we just licensed exclusively technology from Jim Collins' lab at the Beast Institute, which has this ambient temperature amplification method that we now pair with CRISPR. So now we're at a one-pot reaction that occurs at you know, room temperature, ambient temperature, anywhere between 18 or degrees or higher. And it can just work that, you know, with high accuracy, high speed. And that enables us, let's say, to have very low complex devices like a pregnancy test, like just putting that into a course of paper, rehydrating it with a sample, and then just watching a colorimetric change or engaging a lateral flow strip so that now we can have very fast, high accurately, high accuracy, and very low cost of goods for delivering diagnostics anywhere in the world. And so that's what you've seen us also shift to is our business model is focusing on the point of need. We are, we're moving towards bringing our tests 
to where the people are, not doctor's offices. We're focused on whether that is a low resource setting, like you know, the US home is a low resource setting. You don't, you don't have trained laboratory technicians in the US home. You don't have any lab equipment in your home. You, most of the time you go down to the pharmacy, you buy, let's say, for example, a COVID antigen test, or you buy a, a pregnancy test. You just bite at the pharmacy, you follow the instructions, 20 minutes later, you got your results. That's what you need for home testing. And that's what we can now do with this CRISPR technology with our ambient temperature amplification. And so we are bringing you know, these type of tests, not just to the homes in the U.S., but also globally. The other day I was talking to a group in Africa. We were talking about different diagnostics across Africa. And they gave me an example of malaria, where the malaria test has to cost about 50 cents. If it costs more than 50 cents, it's not going to be used or it's not going to be competitive. So cost is really important. And so, and you know, anytime that you need heat, electricity, fluorescent readers, you're in a place where you're going to have high cost no matter what. I mean, I mean, it may not be super high cost, but high cost where you're never going to reach that target of $5 cost of goods or a $2 cost of goods or a $1 cost of goods or 50 cents, like this malaria example. And that's really what we're now able to start aiming for with this particular work. And so we're starting with infectious disease. You know, our area of focus globally initially is STIs. We just have mentioned that we're focusing on chlamydia and gonorrhea as an initial focus area of ourselves. And that's because that's needed not just in high-income countries like the U.S., but also in low- and middle-income countries globally. The prevalence of STIs is actually on the increase, not on the decrease. And we really need to bend the curve on population on this prevalence. And the only way to do that is to start with getting more and more people tested knowing what they have and then being able to rapidly treat it. So it starts with that diagnostic. That's incredible that, you know, you're able to, or at least the aim is to try and get these cheaper, more accessible, and just covering the spectrum of diseases, right? So one question I have around that is how agile is the technology? Something like COVID comes along, how quickly can you adapt and say that, okay, we are also targeting this disease now, or, you know, just basically depending on need of the world, can this be switched up quickly or is it, you know, very specific for a particular disease? So, you know, greater than 15% of Sherlock's employees are in our computational science AI machine learning team. And data is another theme of all my career. I think big data is really what we have to be able to harness. I was doing that at the largest uh, you know, insurance company at, at, with Medco Health. We were using, we had all the prescription data across the United States, for example, that was huge data. You know, big data is important to harness and leverage. And, and, and we built that into Sherlock. And so when COVID came about and we made our first ever FDA authorized use of CRISPR ever, therapeutic or diagnostic, when we got our COVID test, which was an which was like a wet lab assay, it wasn't in a device or delivered to the point of need, which is where we're focused now. But that was the first ever authorization by FDA for any use of CRISPR. That design, we started that work in February uh, of 2020, and we were able to release that assay in May. Now, that took us, you know, we ordered many designs. It took us, you know, months to figure out which is the best assay to, to create and build. And now we put all that data into our machine learning algorithm, and we've actually advanced our machine learning algorithms for, you know, primer design, for any different isothermal amplifications, for guide sequences, for our various different CAS enzymes. And now we're actually able to spit out assays that work almost, you know, if we give you 10, 
one of those will work. And we're almost down to if I give you five, one of those will be the best assay. Uh, and so we're able to actually spit that out in silica and order that and actually have an assay that works very, very rapidly. And so we are now starting to think when the next pandemic hits, we should be able to get a high accuracy assay that we can then take straight into onto our devices in a matter of, of weeks, not months, and be able to have really rapid reactions to future you know, pandemics, which is a lot of the work that we're doing with other founders. We have great founders at Sherlock, Pradeep Sabeti. She's part of the Sentinel Project where you know it's all about surveillance in Africa, then turning that surveillance into what's the latest outbreak. How do we get that into an assay and start testing as many people as we can with that? And they're working with Elma and other funders globally to, to really work on that future. And Sherlock's a part of that future. Thanks for explaining that. And, you know, I'm already seeing the appeal, obviously, of the technology of the company. But let me ask you as a leader, when you decided to join this company, as a scientist, obviously, the choice is kind of different, right? Like the technology is interesting. Let's jump on it. As a leader, obviously, there must be multiple facets that you consider. So what inspires you about this company to take this leadership position? And yeah, we would love to know more about that. Again, as I said to you before, I love to discover new paths, new ways. I love disruption. And so when I had the opportunity to potentially join Sherlock as CEO, I was very excited about the opportunity because I realized that this is a great way for us to decentralize and democratize diagnostics and that this technology that we have exclusivity to really is a game-changing technology to enable that to happen, that that pairing of high accuracy for both sensitivity and specificity with super low cost of goods, which guarantees accessibility and the ability to put it in a very user-friendly way so that anyone can use it wherever they're at. This is what I knew we could do at Sherlock and with this type of technology. So it really excited me. And that's what I always look at. Like, you know, you can go to a company and there's a lot of jobs that are offered as a really hot job market right now, as we know. Um, but I've tried to always spend my career picking the right job where it's a technology that is truly disruptive, that will change the way we do it and then deliver something that no one's had before. You know, as I mentioned, personalizing medication selection for psychiatry that came out of the Mayo Clinic and started up a startup company back in Cincinnati with Assurex. I knew that that was going to be a completely changing technology. And I knew the same thing when I joined Sherlock. But, you know, I, it's also my very first CEO role. And uh, it's exciting to be able to come in and really take a vision and try to make it happen with a great team of scientists that we have here at Sherlock. Absolutely. This is also another aspect that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would find very interesting that, you know, as a scientist, you kind of are now in a CEO role, which is very refreshing, obviously, to see and not extremely common. So I would love to know how your experience has been leading the company so far. And just do you think your scientific background is helping you or do you have to kind of think outside of the box, try and break old habits? How is it changing into that role? Well, I got to say, I thought there was a glass ceiling for scientists and PhDs to be CEO. I was actually told by many of my previous CEOs that the CSO, the chief science officer, you know, can, or the chief medical officer, I've, I've done both roles in my life, and will not ever be the CEO. I was told that many times in my career, that typically it's the CFO, the chief operating officer, the chief commercial officer. These are the folks that can do it because scientists are just all about research and science and they don't know how to 
build a company, scale a company, grow that company. I feel like that might be true for certain companies that are in different fields, but in the field that Sherlock is, which is a very innovative field, the first ever use of CRISPR for diagnostic purposes and understanding like where does it differentiate against things like PCR? Where can you, how do you move it into the point of need? What problems are you trying to solve? I think that takes a scientific mind. And so I think it's a great opportunity for somebody with a PhD to be able to come in and be a CEO of a company with a very disruptive technology where you really need to understand the complexity of that technology and compare that to the whole marketplace. But I've also had great mentors in my life. Uh, I always mention Jenna Drosos. She currently is the CEO of Signet Jewelers. She was head of the beauty division for Procter & Gamble for products like Old Spice and Olay that she rebranded. She was the CEO at Assurex Health, the company that was doing pharmacogenomics. It was her first time in a diagnostic company, but we needed to change how patients found out about what medication choices they were, how doctors did things different. She came in and she scaled that company. And I learned a lot about her, about understanding the customer, understanding, you know, making products that the customer wants, not making products that scientists think are cool or that innovators think are cool, but actually with the end goal in mind. And that's what we're doing here at Sherlock is we're focusing a lot on on that, that customer. And as you've seen, as we've closed our Series B uh, earlier this year and raised $80 million, we've actually started filling out the C-suite and we've hired you know, uh, people like Karen Davies out of Quidel to help us you know, move into development and build the devices that we need for our chemistries. And we just announced the hiring of Julie Garlikov out of Grail. And Grail is a, a great example of a very innovative diagnostic company, but that was the very first diagnostic company that Julie's ever been at. You look at her background, she's been in consumer companies, at coffee companies, derm companies, because just like my mentor, Jenna Drosos, you know, that background is what we need to understand when you're building a product for the point of need for that consumer. And, you know, I think that's another thing that's really important, no matter who is CEO, is to build a strong team, listen to our great founders, but also listen to people who are, are really have their uh, ear to the ground of where that issue is, what that need is. And, and that's why we're also lucky to have great funding from Open Philanthropy, Gates Foundation, and, you know, working with collaborating founders like Pradeep Sabeti, who's working on the project funded by Elma in Africa. It allows us to see where we can be disruptive, what is the need, and what's that first product that we need to bring into those markets. That makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, as a scientist, you're often in awe of a technology, but Maybe if you put yourself in the consumer's shoes, you might realize that this there are some aspects of it which are not as desirable. And just as a CEO put on that hat of, would I buy this? And would anyone want this? And yeah, it's, it makes a lot of sense, but I'm sure it's really, really hard to do. So yeah, kudos to taking that role and, and just uh, thriving in there. But I also think that the one more aspect about being a scientist CEO is that the world is all full of this big data that I keep talking about. And companies you know, are needing to harness their data, not just their research data, but their market research data, their commercial data, their business partner data. And the more that we're able to bring all that data and analyze it in an nth dimensional space, we're going to be able to see where that unique differentiated market opportunity is, which I also think you know, a scientific mind is great for using all of this data to actually change your strategy, change your business model. 
as well. And I'm sure there are a lot of aspiring scientists who possibly want to someday go at the top of an industry. So do you have any advice now from your experience for young professionals? I think, you know, just take the time to look at the opportunities in front of you. Like, you know, I always feel like you should have a goal, a career goal, but that career goal will change throughout your career. But what's important about having the goal is you then look at the next opportunity in front of you and you say, is it, does it help me? Or is it taking me in a different direction? And if it's taking you in a different direction, do you, are you excited about that direction, right? So believe your instinct, go with where your passions are, but make sure that you still have always a goal in mind, a long-term goal, not just a short-term goal. And don't just jump at the very first opportunities. There's a lot of opportunities today. You know, take your time to assess those opportunities and see how they pull together on your path, you know? Another thing that's also important is people should look back at their CV, like, and look at their career and kind of say, what does my career look like if I wasn't looking at my career? So it's always important to step out and say, if I was new and looking at me, what would I see? What would I see with my career? Or in any opportunity, like when you come into a new company, you'll assess that opportunity too. And you'll say, okay, what can I change? Can I make it different? Can I make an impact? If you don't think you can make an impact, I want to choose that opportunity. I'd pick something else. And then also remember that fresh eyes are important. So one thing that I always do is like even here now, it's been one year since I've been at, at Sherlock, I actually step out and say, what if I was coming in today as the new CEO instead of a year ago? What would I look at now and say, why are we doing this? What shouldn't we do something different? Because sometimes it's easy to get on a path and then to stay on it because that you created that path. But sometimes, yeah, as I said, you have to create new paths. So don't be scared of creating new paths and actually not worry about what you've done in the past, but just look at the future about where you need to go. That's really helpful. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will find that beneficial. I've taken notes as well. So yeah, thank you for that. You spoke about the mission of you know accessibility that Sherlock has before. You mentioned the goal is to cross boundaries, not just create tests which are used in the US, but really outside US as well. Obviously, cost becomes a very big factor there. So a couple of questions there. One is, what is the timeline that you envision this could take? When would people across the world be able to use Sherlock Diagnostics? And then the second, which maybe you might be able to cover in the first one, is why is it really hard? Because we we do see COVID tests or pregnancy tests which are in the stores, but obviously the behind the scenes of how many, not just efforts, but like the scale at which maybe people tried. And then there are these couple which got through is might be just unclear to, you know, just like the drug companies, right? Like you see the drugs which passed FDA approval and then you are able to use them. You don't see the 90% drugs which failed, right? Like and did not get through. So similarly in diagnostics, what are the challenges? Why is it really hard to make it make them so accessible? So I think you need to first have a, a product that actually works. It has to have the right high accuracy, right? And so to design assays that give you that level of accuracy, that inclusivity to, to, to really, like let's, let's just take COVID, for example, could, to could identify all strains of COVID, but not identify things that aren't COVID, right? So maximum inclusivity, but the maximum exclusivity on things that it shouldn't be amplifying, right? That takes a lot of, of time and effort. Again, we've sped that up to make it almost completely in silico, but it takes time. But then you actually have to order that assay, make sure it works, and then do a lot of repeatability. And then you have to put it on a way to deliver it. Again, I keep saying 
you can't deliver a bunch of chemistry or liquid experiments and expect any patient person at home to pipette these things into like test tubes and, and put them together, right? And so you then have to put them all together into a form factor that actually still delivers that high clinical accuracy that is required to get regulatory approval and that any different patient can use it in a different way. And so I, I think when with COVID, the great thing has been that people have been able to see different antigen tests. So I think originally when the government was sending out tests, we were getting Binax and then we got iHealth in the mail and they had completely different instructions. One was like a lollipop. You put it in, you put it in the lollipop, you pushed it down. The other one was you put it into a liquid, you squeeze it, you put droplets onto. Like those are just two different manufacturers solutions to make things easy for customers and still give you a very high accurate result. And that takes a lot of time to, to build all that, those pieces and then validate that they work now that they work in clinical trials, get regulatory approval, those things all take time. And so when I came to Sherlock, you know, we had great technology for this completely ambient temperature. And again, the reason I keep focused on ambient is ambient temperature means you don't have to have any circuits, any electricity, any anything that adds cost, right? And so that's where you can get that low cost of goods that can be like those antigen tests, where those antigen tests are just liquid and paper and you get a lateral flow readout, right? So you need to have things that require no batteries, no, nothing, right? And so when I came to Sherlock a year ago, our ambient temperature chemistries took five hours. It had five user steps in order to get, and really still didn't have the level of sensitivity, I think that, that would be important for, for clinical. A year later, our scientists have achieved what I thought was unachievable. We are now having very high accuracy results. It's a single one-pot reaction, and so one step, and it can all happen in under an hour at ambient temperatures. And so when chemistries get to that point, that's the time where it's time to develop them. And that's why we've hired a development organization. That's why we're building the device to house these chemistries. That takes time to, to prototype that. You have to go through breadboarding, alpha phase, beta phase, which we're going to get through over the next year um, or so. And then you have to run those clinical trials for whatever indication that you want to launch to get that regulatory approval. So those things take you know, a few years. And so I think it will be a good couple of years or more before you see, you know, the commercialization of these type of, you know, of a Sherlock assay that really is in that point of need that really has that low cost of goods. Even though a couple of years sounds like, you know, oh, that's, you just described how long the process is, but still we've seen during COVID, right? Like things that would take, I don't know, multiple years before have just because of technology need everything have kind of been shrunken down to in nine months we have a vaccine or um, or so so I would say it's still incredible speed if we really in a couple of years are you're able to go from as you were saying just a year ago your chemistry was different that evolved quickly in a year and say in the next couple of years you're able to actually commercialize it that would still be even if it's a pipe dream it's um it's definitely an impactful one so i i really hope you and the team get there and we get to see your diagnostics in the market and, and maybe have you back to talk more about how you feel once it's out there uh, oh we'd be happy to and happy to give you updates along the way but it's not an if, it's a when, and, and the when is a short time, as you said. So uh, uh, we're very excited about it. And uh, getting the very first few tests out there globally is step one. But after that, it becomes a platform. And it, once you have the delivery in a user-friendly way at a low cost of goods, which is the real key, 
then you can just highly program more and more assays onto that same onto that same form factor that's already has you know what de-risk by having regulatory approval and now you're just taking new assays through clinical studies and into their approval so that you're able to actually rapidly expand the menu once you get to that phase so happy to update you along the way menu i really appreciate everything today Absolutely. Yeah. It's been great hearing about your company, about your ethos as a leader. And I do like to end on, you know, lighter questions. So yeah, what, what would your alternative profession have, had been if you were not a scientist? If I wasn't a scientist, well, first of all, I would say that early on when I was trying to be a scientist, I wasn't sure I was going to be a, a geneticist and be in diagnostics. Uh, I really loved genetics, but I loved ecology. I loved evolution. I thought I was going to be a conservationist. As I mentioned before, I love hiking. So I kind of like liked seeing these uh, at Berkeley at the time we had these ring species that would slowly grow around in a, in a clockwise fashion around a lake. And what, by the time they got back to the beginning of the lake in a full circle, they no longer could actually reproduce with their original starting point because they had evolved over all that time to be almost a different species, yet they could still you know, reproduce all the way backwards through that circle, right? And so I just really thought it was great. I loved ecology. But then I had that opportunity with mycologist, uh, my fungal professor, to work on the first ever you know, fungal disease diagnostic at Roche through a collaboration. And so that took me in that new direction. So, so that's what I originally thought I was going to be doing for a while. But if I wasn't a scientist, I always wanted to kind of go and become a financial analyst where you can analyze scientific companies because there are some people who I always surround myself with who are people I, I call them balloon. They throw balloons up in the air. They have ideas and ideas and ideas. And, and our founders are that way. And, and a lot of our scientists are that way. And I've never been a, a person who sends a lot of balloons up in the air. I've always been a balloon popper. Right. Where I like, oh, that's not a good idea. That's not going to work or no one's going to buy that or you can't commercialize that or it's, that's just a me too. And so I felt like, you know, being a financial analyst for investors to actually pop the bad business ideas and say these are the good scientific business ideas was something that I later on in life, I thought maybe I should go down that road. But nothing that makes me as excited as just being here at Sherlock with a brand new innovative technology that's really going to decentralize and democratize diagnostics globally. I think we're really going to change the world here. No, you're definitely right place, right time. From your answer, I envision you as a Shark Tank judge in a parallel universe, <laughs> but great, great that you ended up here. So um, <laughs> thank you. yeah, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.